You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast of us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. And welcome, we've got coming up today, Chris Cook joins us to talk everything from TEDx Talks, the dangers of ending a show by forcing them to break an arrow with their neck, and all the medical advice you should seek before then. But coming up, a few quick plugs. Please do like rate, subscribe to the podcast. As we said, we endeavour to get this podcast out to you as close to Monday, but it's often a few days late. So the only way you can make sure you will never miss a podcast is to subscribe to it, however get you your podcast. And also, we should mention that if you give us a follow on uh, Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, we will always post about the new episode on there. And also, we should mention that this Saturday we have our little show at the Etcetera in Camden, Split Egg and Magic Show about being twins. A few tickets still left, so get them for that show this Saturday night. But the man sat next to me wasn't sat next to me last week because he's moved into a new flat in Brighton. So, dear listeners, I'm sure you're all desperate to find out. Kane, how was the move? I'm holding a plug. Yes. If I'm doing another one of those... Uh, visual gags for the podcast. <laughs> a visual gag for the, for the radio jokes. Uh, don't about the fisherman I saw this morning. No. But I did. Yes. The pantalite's got another visual gag. And it has, which is perfect for podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not perfect at all. It's bad for podcasts. Um, I live by the sea in Brighton. It's nice, it's sunny, it's hotter than it is here. That's why you've got a stripy top on. Rainy, miserable London. Uh-huh. There, there was uh, people playing on the beach this morning as I left. The ice cream man. Right out of hundreds of thousands. You have to go, like, this first thing in the morning, I bought an ice cream and I was like, can I have some hundreds of thousands? And he was like, you can have hundreds, but you can't have thousands because I've already been home twice to get more. True story. True story. It's, it's, it's not a joke, it's just a true story. Yeah. Uh, and how are the seagulls? I thought it was quite funny. Uh, seagulls, um, there's been, I haven't been pooed on yet. Yes. So that's a plus. But I've, Decided I'm always going to wear a hat because there's been a couple of near misses and I don't want to get poo on my head. And have you dared to eat chips in public amongst I, the seagulls? I haven't eaten outside yet. No, it's quite wise. But I have eaten some nice things. Basically, Brighton has got all the same stuff as London, but you haven't got to wait as long for it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. We went to Meat Liquor. Yes. And on a Saturday night... You know how when you go to meet Lakea, you have to you queue up for ages and then they go, oh, well, there might be a table, but you've got to go and stand at the bar for a while. Yeah. But we won't take, we won't even take your coats. You've got to stand and hold your coats at the bar. And then like 45 minutes later, you get to sit down and then you get your food and it's all really good and nice. In Brighton, straight to the table. And did you have... Because fri- there was no one there. Fried pickles on the, on the, yeah. on the menu have, for you? Did you have them recently? I had them on Saturday night as well. Were they Friday night. Long pieces of pickle? No, they were like the... They changed um, them, not they? The round ones. Yes. Yeah. That's how, how, uh, that's how they've they always used been. They used to be dill pickles, which mm. are the ones that, but like, it's a cucumber, basically. It's a dill cucumber, so it's the whole shape of a cucumber. And then they slice them thin, and then they put that in the batter and deep fry it. But now they're doing them like so that they're just rings. 
I preferred them when they were long and thin. I thought they always did them no, that way. To be definitely no? not. No. Do you think? Because when I was at um, Eat Up and I introduced Frickles to Shrewsbury, yeah, I was copying Meat Licker, yeah, and we did them long like that. Yeah. Which again is another visual reference that you won't be able to see over the airways. But maybe we'll put a little picture of my hands on the in the body of the message. We can put it as the second image I'll on Instagram, so people can swipe across I'll on Instagram and see... How big was it? Then they can see your hands and your pickles. Well, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Very good. I went to Angel Comedy on Friday night before I went to Meat Liquor. Who well, did you see at Angel Comedy? Can't remember Angel. any names. Can't remember any names, but five very good stand-ups. I think it was the best Angel Comedy I've ever been to, those that don't know. Angel Comedy is on seven nights a week at Camden Passage in Angel. Free comedy. Yeah. Of course, you pay on the way out. Um, people were pretty good. Tapping the card machine like crazy on the way out. So whatever night you're listening to this on, you can go to Angel Comedy and check it out. We would recommend it highly. Some it on every night of the week? Seven nights of the week, yeah. Oh, wow. And some nights they have like super me- mega celebrities. Josh Whitaker was there once, wasn't he? I've read Josh Whittaker has been. Like, oh, it's very easy to do an impression of Josh Whittaker. Very surprising to be Josh Whittaker. So, yeah, check out Angel Comedy, check out Meat Liquor, but now, check out Chris Cook on Talking Tricks. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us on Talking Tricks is Chris Cook. Are you recovered from Edinburgh? Yeah, so Edinburgh is uh, is home for me now, so I live up in Scotland, so just getting used to that, although it's been like three or four years, and um, yeah, it, I mean, the weather gets you down, but otherwise, like, at least politically, it feels like the place to be. Yeah, yeah, nice, and did you, we'll, we'll get onto Edinburgh fully, I think, at some point during this chat. Um, because I'm interested, you've done quite a few years now, five, six years? Uh, yes, six, I think. I think this year was my sixth year. Um, I, I kind of, I did my first show and it went well. And I was like, when I knew I was going to do a second, I thought, well, two is not good. It'll have to be a trilogy. And then when I decided to do a fourth, I was like, well, four is no good. It'll have to be five. And now that I've done six, it feels like the next big number is 10, which is a bit daunting, but maybe that's. Maybe that's me for the next few years. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're one year behind you. Okay. So are you, are you bowing out on five or are you going for the full ten? We're going to do one more than you do. That. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. When you start, we're going to do another another year. Another two years. Um, so we'll do that. Um, there's lots I want to talk to you about. This is quite good fun because we only really met in Edinburgh this year and had sort of, you know, quick yeah. chats when we were doing Best of Magic. So it's nice to be able to sit down in this podcast realm and totally. um, properly pick your brains obviously the podcast is called talking tricks and a lot of times by the end of the podcast people go we didn't really talk about tricks much at all we just had a chat and that's probably what we'll do but there's a trick of yours which when i asked you to do it you were like well this is the trick that people might know me for so let's talk tricks straight away get in with the meat of it your arrow trick tell us what you want to about it yeah okay sure so i I guess um, I guess the second year I ever did the fringe, I had an idea for how I kind of wanted to end the show, um, 
Well, I, I mean, it came through loads of different ideas. Originally, like the, the basic idea was that I wanted to get an audience member to do something that they didn't think that they could do or didn't think they should do. Originally, I was going to do a smash and stab. And then at the end, when you're left with one cup with a nail underneath, I was just going to get them to slam the hand down on it anyway, even though they know there's a nail under there. And just, I wasn't even entirely sure what that would look like, whether the nail would vanish or whether we'd stop them. Or, but I just really wanted to like try and push someone to do something that they... They didn't think they could or should do. Uh, and then that sort of turned into the arrows routine that I do, um, which, yeah, I don't know. I, I suppose isn't a magic trick at all. There's, there's no magic in it. Um, it, for me, was all about, like, I think a lot of magic to me seems quite trivial. Like, it seems like what we're trying to do is get people to sort of applaud our skills or often magicians kind of come across as, like, I know something you don't know and that's what you should be clapping and I just don't really like that like I really wanted I wanted to end a show where at the end I, I think it came from that real desire of like when a magician gets somebody on stage so often they finish their routine and then they go give a big hand to Jessica but what they're really saying is like clap me while this person like gets the hell out of here um, so I wanted to be able to say like give a big hand to this person and really mean it like them really be the star of the show um, So that's where the arrows routine came from which is um, Something that people may have seen before um, the arrow break is Something that like has been used in martial arts for a while and also I think like motivational speaker type things Which I always think is a bit wanky, but I'm sure there's people doing that well um, the idea is that you you get a real arrow and it's a real arrow. There's no trick um, it is sharp at one end you can fire it um, and what you do is you put the sharp end of it into your neck and the other end goes against a wall or a piece of wood and you push and I think visually what you would expect to happen is the arrow goes straight through your neck and if you were to fire one of these at someone's neck it, it could go straight through your neck um, but rather than it go through your neck it snaps in half um, and so I decided that I would sort of end a show that I did with that um, but rather than me do it, although I do do it to kind of prove that it's real, it's about getting an audience member out and an audience member doing it. Um, which I think is possibly something a bit different from what a lot of magicians would think of doing, which is, you know, often I suppose magicians, what we want to do is we want to show that we have an incredible skill, like we can hammer a nail up our nose or we can do this or we can read a mind or whatever it is. Um, but I mean, there's no difference really between a magician and an audience member. Like, I, I, I don't have any magic powers. Um, and I want, and I know that people know that. And I know that they know I know that. So I really wanted to exhibit that by just giving somebody, like empowering them with an ability to do something that might seem magic, it might seem impossible. Um, and at first when they try, they can't do it. But then I kind of, yeah, I suppose I sort of empower them with the ability to do it and they can do it. And, uh, yeah, my hope is that they leave the room with something a little bit more than just feeling like they watched a magic show or feeling like even that they were a part of it, but they get to keep the snapped arrow and leave with it. And also, like, not everybody does it. It is really difficult. And again, it's like a big part of it for me was was having the guts to end a show knowing that, like, this is totally on somebody else and that it might not work and they might not do it and... If they don't, I don't have an end of a show and I have to be just like really, really comfortable with that. Like sort of letting go and not having a big finale and a big reveal and all of that. But instead, just like really empowering the audience to end the show 
for me. <laughs> maybe maybe when I put it like that, I realised that's a cop out. I don't know. Because you you did this for a full fringe run. How many yes. how many times did the audience member kind of have the confidence to kind of just say yes to everything and then you know go through with it? And how many times did it just kind of not work because they were just too hesitant or whatever other reason? Okay, yeah, sure. So I would say that I. And this, this might come across as a bit arrogant. I think I would say if I really wanted to, I could probably make anyone do it. But it's not about that. Like, I think, um, I think that would come across as like quite, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it quite forceful. And like, I really, I don't want to feel like I'm peer pressuring people into it. So like, I, I, when I give someone the opportunity, I say to them, would you like some support from the audience? Uh, and the audience are often like, yeah, you can do it, you can do it, and, and screaming. But like I've, I've had audience members before be like, go on, you can do it. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get to shout that because you're not stood on stage. Like if you were stood here doing it, fine, but like you're not stood here, so you can't peer pressure somebody into doing it. Um, so with that in mind, surprisingly, most people do it. Um, I've had, I think, maybe three occasions in shows um, where they haven't done it, and I think I've done it on stage about... 60 times kind of covering fringe shows and tour dates and things like that um yeah and and the reason that people can do it is because it's not just a trick like i i it's the finale of a show which is all about i suppose the things in life that you would like to do but have maybe not got around to doing which came off the back of i, I had uh, quite a bad car accident i crashed a car at about 80 miles an hour um, off the other side of the road, down a bank, through a wall and into a tree and was surprisingly okay. And I think it got me thinking that like, I really didn't have a lot of right to have sort of survived that. Instead, I just totally walked away unscathed and I was kind of thinking, okay, there's a lot of things in life that you've not done. And if you'd have died then, like I've, I'm really happy with what I've done. I don't have a lot of regrets. Like I'm quite proud of my life, but still like I'd have been sad that there was things I'd never achieved. So. I mean, firstly, it got me driving safer, but secondly, it got me thinking a little bit more about, yeah, those things that I wanted to do, and I wanted to spread that into the show. So I suppose the people who get up and break the arrows are people who have something that they really want to achieve, and we just, we turn their desire, their dream, their thing that they want to achieve, we turn the arrow into a metaphor for that. And so it's like, well, look, if you really do want to open a music bar in Manchester, if you really do want to drive a camper van around New Zealand or whatever people's dreams are if you really really want it you can do it and in the same way if you really really want to snap the arrow you can um so yeah surprisingly the the success rate for it is very high if <laughs> if that makes sense and doing this trip is that part of the reason you mentioned uh, how much you're insured um for by equity on your website <laughs> yeah yeah I think so I to be honest I'd entirely forgotten that that was there but um, I, I, I did have to have a separate chat with them and I do have a risk assessment that is kind of, I, I had to go and see a doctor to make it safe. Interestingly, the, the thing about it is um, I, I saw two separate sort of medical professionals um, and it's funny as well because I'm now actually uh, dating a soon-to-be doctor just about to graduate and did it with her and she was like, I don't think this is safe. Um, but I did see two separate doctors who kind of confirmed that this is okay to do. 
uh, and it wouldn't cause any lasting damage. But interestingly, that was based on if somebody does it once, uh, which everybody who comes on stage does it once. I myself do it on stage every night for like a month uh, and I didn't get that checked. And I did notice by the end of like a month long run, I would start to feel a little scar tissue in my neck and I'm not entirely sure it's the safest thing. Um, I haven't made that sound very good if I ever want to do that on stage, if anyone's listening and ends up on stage being a part of it. But um, it's safe. It is safe <laughs> and it is insured. You mentioned there uh, kind of um, seeking medical advice before doing it, which is something I've always been a bit interested in, like that process of being like, OK, I want to do this. I should speak to a doctor beforehand. Was this a case of speaking to friends that were doctors or do you kind of have to book a go private and book a book a yeah. consultation or do you sit in A&E on a Saturday night and then <laughs> get through the curtain and say nothing's wrong with me I'm just interested in uh, breaking an arrow in my neck yeah no I, I don't know is the answer to that I feel like you know if it was part of a David Blaine Dynamo special or something that is what they do they'd go and book an appointment um, but no I, I spoke through I, so I spoke to a, a doctor and a physio the, the doctor I didn't know but it was sort of through someone else who I did know who kind of put me in touch so yeah it wasn't it wasn't in clinic uh, and then yeah similarly the physio um, it, it was a it was someone that I know and we spoke separately but I was very much like remove me from the situation like imagine that just a random person was asking you this don't in any way be biased um, although the physio very much was like because it's you, I'm even less likely to say yes. But um, but yeah, it did kind of confirm that it's safe. Um, but I mean, it, it depends what safe is. Like I, so I, I kind of make a contract with the person on stage, which is that um, if they decide to to go ahead with this, there's there's kind of three things. Firstly, I won't take the piss out of them. Like I'm I'm quite fun and jovial with a lot of people on stage, as I'm sure a lot of people are. I'm like I'm really clear that like this is not a thing that I'm going to take the piss out of you for. Equally, the whole audience is behind you and will support you 100%. But finally, no one's going to make you do anything you don't want to do. Like, consent is important. It's totally your call and no one's going to, like, make you do this. Um, and again, I think that's what separates it for me as to something that can therefore have meaning to an audience member. Whereas I think if I just said, if I just basically made people do it and really encouraged them and said, yeah, you can, then it wouldn't have any value. Um, I think like it, it reminds me of when I went bungee jumping in New Zealand and like I've worked at height before and I've worked at an outdoor center. I'm very familiar with being in a harness and things. I was like, this isn't going to be a problem at all. I'm just going to do it. And then you get to the end, you're all clipped off. And then I was like, am I good to go? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, what, what do I do? And they're like, you jump off. And it's that difference between like, if they just push you, I don't think I'd have got anything out of that experience because... I didn't have to achieve anything. It's a bit like roller coasters. Like I personally don't really get anything out of a roller coaster because I just sit in it. I'm clipped in. I know it's safe. Like I know that there's nothing that can go wrong there. In theory, I mean, obviously that's not true. And we know that from the news a couple of years ago, but like I just trust them. Whereas I think with bungee jumping, like having to step off that platform yourself is what like made that a great experience for me. And I think the arrows is the same thing. Not just, just, making it happen but actually saying to someone this is yours if you want it and if you want to do it great well let's go all the way back you um you meant you d you've done a tedx talk and I, that's something else i'm really interested in the whole process and um kind of the amount of work that, that you would have put into that um but you mentioned right at the beginning of that talk that you wanted to be a magician from the age of six so so let's go all the way back there first and kind of 
map you from six-year-old to walking on stage for the TED Talk. What was your first kind of knowledge, I suppose, then, of magic or a magician? Okay, well, so I guess I would say, first up, that is totally a straight-up lie. Like, at six, I do not think I wanted to be a magician at all. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, I, I'm not really sure where magic, like, came into my life. Like, I remember when I was at about that age and a bit older, my dad used to do little um, tricks for me as a kid. He had a thumb tip, he had like a few little things like that and he would do little magic tricks and, uh, but I don't think that hugely separates him from the way that I think a lot of dads just try and do little fun tricks with their kids. Um, whether it's not magic, they were always trying to do something like that. Um, so I think I, I liked that, but I don't think I really got into magic until I was like a sort of teenager. Um, and I, I didn't, I don't think I got a magic set or anything like that, but I, I remember seeing Paul Zenon on TV and he did sort of like kind of Barbet style magic. And I just thought it was great. And you could see that it was just, it was fun and it was cheeky. And I remember watching David Blaine at the same time and thinking, oh God, this is all very serious. Whereas Paul Zenon was just so lighthearted about it and didn't take himself too seriously. And I really liked that. So I think the first tricks I learned were little bar bets and scams and ways to sort of win money down the pub. I remember like I used to go to the pub when I was sort of 15, 16 and wasn't really old enough. I didn't look old enough either to get served, but I would sort of sit in the corner and show people tricks and then they would buy me drinks. And that was how I'd like drink in a pub when I was young. Um, so I, I kind of think that's how I got into magic. Like I, I realized a lot of the stuff that I was doing sort of was magic tricks and that I could, I could use those skills to like create moments of magic rather than just sort of like a pool shot or a bar bet or a, a way that you sort of lose, but instead a way where at the end you could kind of win because you saw some magic and it was fun rather than feeling like, ah, this, this kid's just sort of ripped me off. Um, so yeah, so I, I think like, in my head, I don't remember being much of a sit in the bedroom practice kid, but I bet my parents would say different. I bet they would like, oh yeah, no, 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 you were totally super lonely and bullied as a kid and that's why you used to sit in your bedroom and practice magic tricks. But in my head, there wasn't really any of that. It was always very social and sociable and I would just go out and do things. I didn't really practice at home a lot. I would just go and sort of practice in front of people. So I think a lot of the early magic that I did was really rubbish. Um, and to be honest, I think it probably still is. Do you know what I mean? Like if I learn something now, I don't spend hours practicing it. I straight away and go, go and show it to people. So I'm sure there are like people very close to me that are like, yeah, I've seen them do some good stuff, but I've seen them do an awful lot of rubbish stuff because I'm just, I'm very much of the opinion that I think you should just, if you practice in front of a mirror, you only get good at fooling the mirror, whereas you should just go out and, and do it for people. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's sort of how I got into magic in the first place, was a desire to just sort of connect with people. And I, I worked as a youth worker for a while, and I found that it was a really good way of, of connecting with kids who usually didn't really sort of want anything to do with me. Often, like I, I grew up in the Lake District, so we were taking kids out um, in the fells or on lakes and, and pushing like what we're usually sort of disadvantaged kids from maybe like a London background. So they're not, they've not seen sheep and wildlife before. And they're quite like abrasive and they don't really, they think that they know everything and they don't really want anything to do with you. And then you sort of show them a bit of magic and they're like, not only do they realize they don't know any, everything, but they're like, oh, that's quite cool. And like, it sort of enamors you to them. So I found it was like 
a good way of breaking down boundaries. So was that your sort of first career then, this youth work stuff, or were you a young adult kind of doing it on a semi-permanent basis as well? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I suppose, um, yeah, I suppose it was my, my first career. I guess uh, I, I've sort of always done magic gigs. Like I, I think I did my first gig when I was maybe like 15 in restaurants I, and I did a couple of weddings when I was far too young to really be going to people's weddings, I think, at 16, 17. And, you know, I'm sure I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but yeah, it was never something that I really focused on. It was never really something that I intended to be a career. Um, and I'm not necessarily sure that youth work was either. But yeah, that's sort of like, I was very clear that like I wanted to work with people. So um, yeah, so I worked as an outdoor sort of worker and a, a youth worker in an outdoor centre. Um, and then I kind of continued that with, with other jobs in that industry. I also sort of worked in a, a summer camp in the States, kind of doing similar stuff. Um, but then, yeah, I, I, later on in life, actually um, went and studied a journalism course, broadcast journalism at Leeds University, and thought that that was something I might be quite interested in. I originally was kind of quite interested in either sort of politics reporting or towards the end of the course, I was quite interested in war reporting. Uh, and then I did a little bit of like work for the BBC and was sort of like, it, I think I realised that like journalism is a dying industry. Nobody really wants to pay for it anymore. So there's a lot of churning out press releases and not really putting the time and energy into doing journalism well. And I think ideally, if you want to do something, you probably want to do it well. And so, yeah, I kind of fell out of favour a bit. I, I think the only role that I really thought I wanted to do by the end was like, I'd have liked to have been a radio presenter but to do that, like that's a really long journey and you probably have to be a famous musician or something first. Um, and yeah, so I guess it was like, do I want to sit at a desk for years and years working my way up to get somewhere that I probably don't want to be? Or do I want to try and go and be a war reporter and get shot at? And that didn't sound that appealing either. Um, and I sort of just kind of accidentally fell into doing magic. Um, I did my first ever Fringe show and it went better than I was expecting. And then afterwards I, I had to have some quite major knee surgery because I, I bust my knee quite badly in a snowboarding accident. And I had to kind of move back in with my parents and spend a few months where I just, I couldn't walk, I couldn't work, I couldn't really do anything. So I just did a lot of sitting around and thinking about magic and sort of rebuilding my website. And it kind of led to getting lots of bookings, corporate stuff, as well as private things and working on a new Fringe show. And just sort of time went by where I kind of was like, wait a minute, I don't have a job anymore. And this is my job. And all of the money I've made has come through this. So it, yeah, it really very much happened by accident. That's um, interesting. How old were you when you went to uni? I think I started when I was 21. Um, so yeah, so I, I took a bit of time out and worked in a few other jobs and traveled around and did stuff like that beforehand. Um, but then, yeah, I, I, I did kind of quite a bit of magic at uni as well. And I also um, was sort of part of the Leeds uh, comedy club, did some stand-up comedy. But even then, I think it was like, that that was a real fear thing of doing, when I did stand-up, I'd always have like a pack of cards or a trick or something in my pocket, kind of knowing that like, if, if the comedy doesn't work, if the material isn't good, or like if I'm floundering, I can always impress an audience with something, which I, I think I, I'd love to go back and do that again, but I still feel like I would have that fear and I would probably like 
have a trick or some juggling balls on standby, um, which I think betrays like a, a lack of self-confidence in your material, if you know what I mean. Whenever I've done like stand-up, open mics, things like that, I've always had it like my view is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like a minute or two when I'm going to tell my jokes. And then I was like, and then I'm going to do a trick. Like I'm always going to do the yeah. trick. Um, and it always works out that actually the first few minutes are crap. And then as, start, as soon as I start doing the trick, they love it. So I'm just like, just always do the trick. Yeah, but at, at the same time, do what, do what fulfills you. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if, the, if, the, if the magic's what you want to do, do the trick, always do the trick. But like if what you want to do is the comedy, like I think, I think the, the problem with magic is it can be so easy to get applause. It can be so easy to get people amazed if you think about the amazement that say like an invisible deck a very beginner trick that a lot of people can do and probably do quite well the amount of applause and uh like appreciation an audience can give that moment is huge and if you were to transfer that to like a, a stand-up comedian they're not going to get those kind of laughs or those kind of that kind of applause until they're like two years into like writing a lot of their own material and I think like that is a big problem with magic is that we often sort of shortcut ourselves to the stage um, or to applause like a magician can do an hour-long show relatively early on in their career often and it might not be amazing I've seen it it probably won't be but it'll often take a comedian or other sort of variety performers a lot longer to get to that level um, and equally, magicians often tend to get paid a lot better than other people, which again is often like a downfall. Like, you know, your average amateur magician can still probably go and do a gig for like 350 quid for a couple of hours. And that could be like, that's probably headline uh, money for, or more than that, at a lot of comedy clubs where they would expect someone to have been like gigging and done hundreds of gigs and been doing it for a good couple of years. Um, whereas magicians, we can often sort of shortcut that, which I think in many ways can be great, but a lot of the time can be like a little bit detrimental to us working harder, harder than we should. And I know that you're quite, you know, um, certainly with your shows in Edinburgh, I know you, it's something that you put a lot of thought and effort into. Um, what is it then that you think kind of makes for a good trick? Is it a shit hot method? Is it something that always has story behind it? Is it, you know, flashy, showy things? What is it that you kind of look towards when you start building out the kind of material you always want to perform on stage? Yeah, that's, so that's a really good question because I, I don't think I know the answer to it. And I think like it's the million dollar question and I think I wish I knew the answer to it. But I think like my opinion has changed quite a few times. So like my opinion absolutely used to be it's all about the presentation. It doesn't matter about the trick. Like I've seen people absolutely slay audiences with very beginner stuff. We're talking thumb tips and invisible decks and, and stuff that lots of people are very familiar with. And, and magicians will get really annoyed. They're like, I can't believe like they're just going on stage with that. That's, you know, whereas I've worked really hard on my like diagonal palm shift. And it's like, well, yes, but that is really, really entertaining. And that's why that's better and often people who've worked really, really hard on the skills-based stuff haven't worked as hard on the performance stuff. So absolutely, my opinion used to be the trick is almost irrelevant. It's all about the performance. Um, I think over time, I'm starting to like shift into going, well, actually, 
there's no reason why the magic shouldn't be incredible. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 yes, maybe you can get away with, with doing something very easy and just perform it really well, but there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing something like fucking incredible and super original and super complicated. And like, if that means like getting there an hour early to set something up, if that means like hiding something in a place or, you know, doing some complicated pre-show or bringing your secret assistant and getting them to fly out there to the gig as well or whatever it takes. Like if you can make something that is just like outstanding, going that extra bit, I think there's no reason why you shouldn't. And I think, think that's the thing we all fall foul of. Um, I, I know I fall foul of it all the time. It, there's always an easier way out. Um, uh, I, are you familiar with Nate Staniforth, the magician? Yes, so, so I, I went to like a workshop with him recently and we were talking about that. And he was saying, you know, like how many people do things like the double undercut? And he's like, you convince yourself that it's fine but he's like, maybe if you do a pass, it might be a lot harder, it might be difficult, but it is kind of better. So is there no reason why you're not doing it? And he talked about that idea of kind of, you can, um, if you could put like 10% more effort into something and get like 90% better rewards, you would absolutely do it. But he's like, if you had to put in 300% more effort, and it only makes a trick like 5% better, would you do it? And most people's answer is, well, no, it's 300 times, like 300% 300 more just for 5%, it doesn't seem worth it. But he's like, the answer absolutely has to be yes, because that's what nobody else is doing. And that's what I think some of the best people are doing. Like, um, I, I, I know like me, you're, you're a big fan of Charlie Caper. And I think like, when you watch Charlie work, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing someone who, the reason he is better than you could be because he is just better and he is more creative or whatever. But often also the reason he is better than other people is because he's just worked so much harder. Like he's, he got up really early and he's been practicing and he's been working really hard. And so I think, yeah, my, my idea in the past of like a good trick has to be a really great performance and the story has to be really good. The jokes have to be really good. I think that's still really important, but there is no reason why you shouldn't be like making the magic really original and really incredible. Um, and I think certainly that's that's something that I, uh, yeah, that's a change in my view. And and, and also that that um, reflects in like having having worked with Dave Anik and that is seems to be very much his uh, thoughts on it is, is he's recognized that he wants to really improve his magic game because there's no reason why you shouldn't. And I really, really respect that. Yeah, well, we had Dave on the podcast and uh, he, he mentioned, spoke about what he brought to your show as a director. Um, so I should probably turn it around and, and ask a, a similar question to you. What what did you feel Dave brought to your show? What did you get out of um, having Dave working on your show this year? Yeah, sure. So, um, so for the past five years of doing The Fringe, I've worked with uh, a good friend of mine who I, I know you know and, and have, have worked with, which is Reese Williamson. Uh, and he's a friend that I, I met at uni. He used to do stand-up. Um, and sort of met him through that. And we just ended up working and writing on shows together. And the reason I really enjoyed working with him was because uh, he isn't a magician and he's not interested in becoming a magician. And therefore, like, he had a very different attitude to things. I think when you work with magicians, you can often get really hung up in, like, methods for things. 
But I think the method doesn't really matter. The effect is what matters. What it looks like is what matters. How it's done is not really important. Um, obviously, it is to you, but it shouldn't be to the audience. They don't know how it's done, so it doesn't matter how it's done. You just need to get it done. Um, so I really enjoyed working with Reese, And then it looked like we maybe sort of wouldn't work together for a year, just with us both living away and different places and being quite busy. And so Dave showed an interest in, in working together. And I was really excited to, for that, to do something different. Um, I think what he brought to it was like a focus on the tricks in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like the way I've always written shows is I haven't even thought about the tricks. I've thought about like what the show is, what the story is, what, what the message that I want to get across is, or the feeling that I want to kind of um, elicit from an audience. And uh, Dave was like, let's just start with the tricks. Let's just, let's just write a load of tricks. Let's come up with new ideas for tricks or let's work on other tricks from the past or other things that you've done and just like focus on those. Um, and it just, to me, seemed like totally backwards. Um, it, I, I think it's probably like writing the lyrics before you've written the song. It just doesn't seem the way you would do it. Uh, but I really enjoyed the process and got loads out of it. And then in the end, Dave ended up taking more of a backseat role and I sort of worked um, with, yeah, with, with a writer and director um, separate from Dave. And then Dave came on and did loads more at the end. So he, I think there was, there was a sense of like at the very end, he was like, I, I took over as a director because I thought I could change how you would work. And in the end was like, I can't change how you work. Or I can just add, add what I can to it. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was a real joy working with him because I know that we've both sort of influenced each other. I saw his show the year before I came to The Fringe uh, and to all intents and purposes, I watched it and I, I saw a, a, an amateur guy. Like, I mean, he was doing a really pro job, but like you could see that he wasn't, um, he wasn't the other people that were on the circuit at the time. He wasn't like, he hadn't done TV. He hadn't got a PR, a management sort of agency and things like that he was like I watched him and I was like shit he's just like a guy like me he's a guy who's good at magic and who's good on stage and he's turned that into something incredible and and I found that quite inspirational and then yeah I think through the shows that I've done that have focused more on storytelling more on eliciting a response from an audience rather than trying to impress them I think that that influenced him I remember he he saw a show that I did a couple of years ago um that like quite a lot of the shows that I do although they're very funny and fun, they often end in sometimes quite an emotional way. Uh, and it, it hasn't been uncommon for me to cry on stage or for audience members to, to cry watching it. And I, I remember he watched the show and at the very end was like, I'm doing that. He was like, I want to make an audience cry. I've, I've made them laugh. I've made them clap. I've made them do loads of things. I've never, ever made an audience member cry. And I want to do that. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily a good thing to be pitching for, but um, but it, it, I know that like that is that is a feeling that we've both shared that like the shows that we have seen that we've enjoyed the most are often things that have moved us the most. And often that means emotionally moving. And I just think it's quite rare for magic shows to do that. Like it's it's uh, it's quite easy to make an audience sort of laugh and clap. It's quite difficult to make them think. I think it's really difficult to make them feel. And I think now I'm at the point where that's the thing I want to focus on most is making them feel. Yeah, well, I think Dave nailed it this year with, with Actual Magic. It was a pretty emo emotional show. I, I, think he, I think he absolutely did. But I also think the thing that I really liked about that is that it, um, it didn't compromise Dave and it didn't compromise like 
his style and his other shows, and I think when he talked about that with me in the sort of process of making it, he was worried about that, that it was like, can I do something that is emotional and is, is stylistically quite different and still sort of be me and still be the Dave character. And I think, I think he, did a, he did that really well. I, that, that, was, that was a real joy to watch that show and to see like a, yeah, a new side of a performer that I've been, you know, really happily watching for years do something really different. It was, it was beautiful. So what have been some of the, um, the, the highlights, the top moments, the happiest memories of your um, years going up to the fringe? And, you know, on the flip side, what have been some of the, the biggest challenges? Mm, yeah, okay, okay. So, so my highlights have predominantly been other shows. Um, like I've got loads of highlights of, uh, you know, my own stuff and of being on stage, of doing late night you know, cabaret shows at one in the morning of doing like, you know, working with some wild, different, incredible acts. Like I've got loads of great memories of that, but predominantly my favorite memories have been other shows that I've seen. So like a, a big one for me is, is Paul Curry, the comedian who I, uh, I adore and I see every year and he's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and his sort of like uncompromising passion for fun is just something that like, I just cannot get enough of. I think one of the most influential things that I've ever seen at the Fringe. And I think totally changed my life was uh, was the first year that I ever did the Fringe and I saw Red Bastard's show, uh, which is is done by a guy called Eric Davies, who is a, an ex-Cirque du Soleil clown. Um, and it was just a truly beautiful and really emotive journey of a show. Like it was incredibly funny and incredibly fun, but it, I've never, I, I watched that and was like, everything I thought I knew about theatre is wrong. Like, you can totally be really abrasive with an audience. You can make people do things that you don't, they don't want to do. Um, and yeah, that, that show was sort of, yeah, uh, uh, all about pushing people outside of their comfort zones. And I, I think for lots of people, the show lasted a lot longer than the hour that it looked like it lasted. People left that room and they went and called loved ones and spoke to them in ways that they weren't expecting. They like resolved things that have been kicking around in their lives probably for decades. Like there are people I think like me who are still thinking about their experiences of watching that show years and years later. And like, God fucking damn it. Do we not all just want that? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's cool to have someone think about you for the rest of the day, but like, when people are still thinking about something that you did on stage years later, I think for me, like, surely that should be what we're all aiming for. Yeah, which, which Red Bastard show was that? I've seen both of the ones that he's done. Um, and so this was the first one that he did. Um, but I really liked the second show that he did, which in a, a way I almost liked more, um, which was all about love and how do we love and are we loving wrong? And, you know, is what counts as cheating, what counts as um, love, like what does love mean? Which I think was brilliant, especially because almost that entire show was attended by couples who I think left being like, wait a minute, is, are we doing the right thing? Or do we need to also see other people or what's going on? And yeah, so I, I, I think the reason his shows have been some of my favorite things that I've seen is because I think they make people leave the room different people than when they came in. And I just think that that's a really powerful thing to be able to give to an audience 
rather than have people leave going, yes, I liked or didn't like that, but have people leave being like, I fundamentally feel different from how I did when I came in. Um, and of course you can do that through comedy, you can do that through entertainment. Sometimes people just go into a show feeling a bit miserable and they feel, they leave feeling incredible. Um, but yeah, I think those shows were something that, yeah, were really defining for me, I think, on, in sort of my journey as to what, what I think theatre can be. Yeah, I saw The Love Show, it's incredible. Um, uh. It was quite funny, a few, probably half a year after that, we did Adelaide Fringe and Red Bastard was there. And uh. he would come into the like fringe bar after his shows and he would have gone through the whole process of taking the suit off and yep. anyone that hasn't seen Red Bastard, I'm sure whilst listening to this, has, has Googled it. He looks like I hope so. he's essentially a man in a red, um, like, stocking sort of... So, so it's like a devil suit, isn't it? Like, it's... it's ugh. I mean, do you know how he ended the first show? Oh, God. Okay. So, I mean, I, I don't think he's performing it anymore. I think it's okay to say this. So his first show was all about pushing audience members outside of their comfort zone which they do, and at the very end of the show, it really feels like that. There's a lot of very potentially heavy audience interaction, but again, very much on the audience's terms, not on, on his. And at the very end of the show, he takes the costume off and he just takes it all off until he becomes the person underneath and explains that that's what he wants to do and talks about what his fears are until he's just stripped the whole thing off and he's completely naked <laughs> and ends the show like that and like yeah watching the devil sort of climb out of his own skin was just this like overwhelmingly powerful like sort of guttural experience to like be a part of um and yeah god i i think some of my favorite fringe memories have been like shows like that that really like that hit you in the guts and just really like knock you whether it's because it's funny or emotive or moving or powerful um but yeah, I mean, his his work and a few others are, are people that at the fringe that I feel like I could just talk about for hours. Yeah, he's an eccentric guy. But in Adelaide, he he would take the suit off to come to the bar, but he wouldn't he wouldn't take his makeup off. So then uh. he, he would just sit in the bar and he'd like kind of come in. And he'd be like, "Hey, how was your show today?" And because I um, like chatted to him and was like oh I saw you showing that and then you know I told him about our show so then I used to see him every night and have a quick chat but sometimes <laughs> he'd come round to the table that I was on and talk to everyone and there'd be like 20 people that didn't know who he was and he was just this guy that just kind of had face paint on <laughs> yeah. and never referenced it it was just it was strange he's a funny chap Cool. Any more Edinburgh moments? Any kind of, I suppose, any any Edinburgh advice? Really, you're you're a you're a native yeah. now. Um, people might be listening to this, uh, getting ready to put in their applications um, yes. to go off and do it. Any advice for for first timers or or maybe even non first timers? Okay. All right. So like, first up, do it. Like, if you want to do it, do it. Don't don't regret not doing it. Equally though, don't rush it. Like. Some people do it before they're ready. I think like a lot of things in life, you kind of only get one shot at it. Um, you know, like it, you're not gonna get a repeat booking from a client that you ballsed up the first time. So I think like, I've seen people come to the fringe before they're ready. Um, and I think it's the world's largest arts festival. There is no shortage of incredible stuff to see. Um, 
be some of that incredible stuff. If you think you can bring something that's going to be like all right, then you're competing with other things that are just all right. Go and try and compete with the things that are really, really good. So be the best you can be. Try and be ready. I've, I've seen people come up to the festival who really don't have a lot of stage time. Um, and obviously the Fringe is a great place to get some stage time. But I think there's loads of other ways to do that. And it's a good idea to try and get as much in beforehand as you can and, and just try and be the best you can be, um, which for me tends to mean um, not doing a sort of compilation-based magic show. Um, it doesn't matter what you do instead. It could be some storytelling. Um, a few years ago, I, I did a show that was sort of all about art and an art forger um, and sort of fakery. And magic obviously fit that theme very well, um, but it wasn't a show about magic. It was about something else that featured magic. Um, I've seen, you know, you guys, your um, the Split Egg, the Twins <coughs> uh, show, like that's a great concept and an idea for a show that is not just like, here's a bunch of tricks that we've put together. Sure, the show might be full of a bunch of tricks that you've put together, but it doesn't feel like that. And I think, you know, we talked about Dave Annick's show. Um, that again was a piece of storytelling and had more going on there despite it being obviously still full of tricks. Um, so that, that would be my top advice for people thinking of coming to the Fringe is like, what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of it? What do you really, really want to say? Like, what do you have to say that cannot be said by anyone else and that you really have to get off your chest? Um, and if the answer to that is like, I just want to show people a load of card tricks and make them happy, that's okay, but it's maybe not necessarily a good enough answer. It can take people forever to figure out what it is that they want to say, but I think like, I get quite frustrated when I see people on stage doing things that if you, if you took the magic out of it, you'd realize that they had almost nothing at all to say. Um, and I think we can be better than that. So yeah, that, that would be my top advice for people is, um, yeah bring something original and that doesn't necessarily mean like original magic like it's quite hard to come up with tricks and there are centuries of magicians that have been coming up with incredible tricks i don't think there's any shame in like learning other people's and adapting other tricks certainly marketed effects obviously don't steal people's material but you know um there's countless magic books out there i think it's okay to not necessarily be doing the most original magic it's not okay to not be doing an original show yeah, I think you're spot on. That's one of the lessons that we learned from our first year. We came up and we just wanted to do it. You know, we just wanted to do it to have done it. And then just spent the whole time being like, we, we're not telling the audience anything. We're not mm. even telling them about us. It's just, here's a trip. Like people came away and they didn't even know the relationship between us. So that's when yeah. we were very much like, right, we need to write. Well, our second show, although it was called Breaking Magician's Code, it was all about our granddad, um, really. Uh, it just had a marketable title. But I, I, I was really gutted that I didn't get to see that show because I heard really nice things about it. And that, that was before I met you, but um, I, I was good friends with, uh, with Ava Bow, who um, was like, ah, oh, you've got to go and see this show. And I think like many years, I think my show just seemed to clash with your show and I didn't get to see it. But yeah, she said that it, it had a lot more to it than just like a, a clever title. Yeah, it, yeah it, was com it was kind of completely different to what everyone expected, but we told them that almost as soon as we came on, you know, because people were like, oh, it's going to be like the TV programme, but it wasn't. It was kind of our life story and our granddad, um, and he passed down a code of conduct, and we were breaking 
We were just being naughty boys. We were doing everything we were told <laughs> not to do by our granddad. But enough about us. Um, I do want to talk about, about your TED Talk. I watched it this afternoon. Very interesting. Good 17 minutes for everyone to uh, put into the old YouTube and have a little watch after this if they haven't had enough Chris Cook in their life. Um, but I'm interested to know the whole process behind that. Um, how, how did you become to do, to do this TED Talk? Do they approach you? Do you approach them? What, what's the whole um, uh, process behind that? Uh, yeah, so um, the TED Talk, that kind of came about through a friend of mine who had decided that he wanted to try and organise. Um, so the TEDx events are independently organised TED Talks. And so in theory, anyone can do it. There is a big list of sort of rules and ways that you should do it. <clears throat> but um, if you can kind of find a venue and make it work, um, you can do it. And so there's, there's lots of ones like the Leeds University one, which ran for a few years, but different people would take, <clears throat> take over organizing it. Um, and so a friend of mine decided that he would take over doing it, but also was very keen to have me as one of the speakers because he was like, I think it's really good to get something that is uh has a level of entertainment factor to it and not just um yeah like some of the talks can seem a little bit dry on the day they're often great on the internet if you're interested in that topic but on the day for a live audience can feel a bit dry so it was like i want something to spice it up but it wasn't just um as easy as that he then had to go and pitch it to the committee who then sort of got in touch with me and and asked what the talk would be about and I had an idea of what I would, I would like it to kind of be about, which I suppose that the me message in that is, um, is play is to play and like don't, you don't have to constantly take life so seriously. I think it's, it's really important for adults to play as much as kids do. Um, so yeah, um, but the, the kind of the writing process for that and getting ready and being prepared for it was quite stressful because yeah, I, I do remember thinking, unlike most gigs that you do, you do it and it's done. With that, you do it and then it's on the internet and it's there forever and you can't edit it or change it or remove it. So I wanted to make sure that like I was, um, yeah, doing something that I was kind of happy with and that would still make sense in sort of 10 or 15 or 20 years time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hope I did that. Like, I mean, it was a long time ago and I think maybe I feel a little differently now, but I do still watch it every now and again. Um, every year or so I'll kind of put it on and usually I go, nope, this still stands true and I'm still proud of this. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned it, it being 17 minutes long. The, the cutoff time for the talk was 18 minutes. <clears throat> um, if it was any longer than that, it doesn't go on the internet. Nobody ever sees it. That's it. It's over. Um, and so I was going to do the arrows thing and I built a talk around that and I realized it was probably going to run over. I should do a talk that was going to be a lot shorter. Um, people watch shorter videos anyway. So I wrote a talk that was 12 minutes long. I rehearsed it loads of times. It was consistently between 12 and 12 and a half minutes long. I did it on the night and it was 17 and a half minutes long and we were about 20 seconds short of them just cutting the entire thing. So uh, another one of those examples of like when you use audience members, you forget how much that will eat into your time. And like every time I do things with other magicians, you know, they're like, oh, you've got a tight eight minutes or you've got exactly 15 minutes. Every single magician always runs over. I always fall into that trap as well. So fortunately it was just fell under time and managed to make itself online. Did you kind of learn anything, I suppose, from yourself uh, through the process of writing that or? Mm, yeah, so um, I, think, I think part of, part of my success if you can call it that, is often that I'm quite confident on stage and I'm quite comfortable. So I've done 
I've done events, certain events, um, particularly kind of corporate things where I've not necessarily been as prepared as I could have been because something has changed on the day, someone's not turned up. It's like, oh, you were gonna do 10 minutes, but now can you do 25 or things like that? And I've always, always been able to just take that sort of stuff in my stride. Um, I think that comes from a, a street performer background, which is kind of a lot of my performance um, chops in the early days started from doing street performance and, and mainly through a friend's company doing kind of juggling shows rather than magic. Um, but that's also a downside. I think that's also my flaw is that I can often go on stage and not necessarily be as prepared as, <coughs> as perhaps I should be. I haven't written as much material. I'm not as confident with it. I've even gone on stage with props that aren't quite right, but I'm like, it'll be fine and I'll wing it. Um, and I think, yeah, for, from writing the, the TED talk was really feeling like, no, that's not what I'm doing. Like I'm writing every word and I'm making sure that this is exactly how I want it to be. Um, and I learned a lot through doing that and sort of, yeah, certainly there was a recognition of that's maybe the direction I need to move more into if I, because um, I, I have the confidence to be on stage. I think it's, that's almost easier to have than it is to have the confidence in your material. Um, you know, I, I've seen you guys do the same thing. Like I remember watching you guys do a, a manipulation act where you were like, well, I'm not sure if this is going to be the best. We've been rehearsing it for a bit, but we're a little underconfident with it. But it's like, you guys are just really good on stage. You can sell that. Even if you'd have like fucked up every single moment of that, it still would have been entertaining to watch. Similarly with like Dave Anik, I've watched him like absolutely balls tricks up on stage and it's been funnier than if it had gone right. I think it's very easy to fall into that trap. And I think writing the, the TED talk made me realize that it's like, no, there is a real value in... Um, having a bit more confidence in your material rather than just the confidence in yourself. Yeah, I think that's a great lesson for, for anyone to kind of uh, take going forward. Um, and I want to go forward and discuss your, you know, what, what you've got coming up. But before then, there's an accolade I can't leave behind. A few years ago, you, you were the wedding magician of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was something um, that came through, firstly, like every magician is an award-winning magician. And if you're not, go and win an award. It's not difficult. Um, <laughs> so that came from, I, I was living in the Lake District at the time, loads of really nice wedding venues there. And I was like, I want to do more weddings. It seemed like at the time that was a good thing that the economy was on the turn down. But like, again, if people want to do wedding magic, a little bit of advice here, people will always spend money on weddings. It doesn't matter how bad the recession is. It doesn't matter how bad things go with Brexit or whatever. People will always get married and people will always spend money on weddings. So that can be a bit of a stable um, ground in a way that the corporate wor world was sort of going, oh, we've got to spend a lot less money on events and things. So I thought I'd, I'd like to do a lot more weddings. Um, so I just, I really focused on trying to find some awards. And in that particular one, that was, that was Bride Book. Um, and yeah, they, they had like a shortlisted competition where I think you needed to send in some reviews from couples that you'd worked with. So I just I messaged everyone that I could, that I'd, I'd done weddings for and got them to get in touch. And I sort of spoke with Bridebook and like, oh, what, what, can, what can I do? What are you looking for? Um, and in the end, uh, and again, this is, this is where everyone can be award-winning if you want. Um, so I didn't actually win the category I was in. I came second, but the category was best uh, wedding entertainer um, and I think the thing that beat me was like a firework display team so I was like a little bit annoyed I was like I don't really want to be the second best entertainer in the UK but then I was like well but I am the best magician in the UK because I wasn't beaten by another magician so I sort of got in touch with them and it's like well is it okay to have the accolade of UK's best wedding magician rather than 
UK's second best wedding entertainer. They were like, we see no problem with that. So again, it's like it, 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 those kind of things, it's a little bit of a game. Um, and if you want to work in industries like that, it's sad, but I think you have to play that game. Um, but you can play that game really well. And, and, and that doesn't mean that you're not good at it. You know, like I, other people who've won similar awards, um, my friend Sam Fitton, who has won um, the UK's best wedding entertainer with a, a different, I think the Wedding Industry Experts Awards. <coughs> he worked really hard to do that, um, but he is also excellent and he deserves it. Um, and so like, yeah, you have to play the game a little bit, but it's, um, it's worth doing because I think people will recognize those, those accolades. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a shame that there's, there's not more of that at the fringe as well. I mean, I think I, I've spoken with other variety performers that they say, you know, it's, it's really nice that there is obviously the, the comedy awards. <coughs> there are other awards as well. There doesn't really seem to be an award system for um, cabaret or variety or magic shows in the way that there is at like the Adelaide Fringe Festival and places like that. So I think that would be something I, I'd, I'd be really keen to see in Edinburgh in, uh, in future years. It needs to happen um, because yeah. it really does because... You know, every year people that might not even go to Edinburgh are still interested to know who won the Comedy Award. And if you win the Comedy Award, quite rightly so, um, there's lots of opportunities that come off the back of it. Uh, and there's, there's, there's nothing there for variety artists, really. Mm. And, um, yeah. and I think actually with the Comedy Award, although um, a, a comedy variety artist might be considered... They always kind of want to give it to straight stand-up and, and, you know, real solid um, comedy. Uh, and I think we're missing out. I, th I think we are. Although that said, I think it's... <coughs> I think it's almost a bit of a travesty that a magician hasn't been nominated for that. And I, I, I think that's because there hasn't been one that has deserved that nomination yet. And I really hope that there will be one day. Because uh, although you're right, it tends to go more towards stand-up. There have been some fantastic variety acts that have been nominated. People like <coughs> Nina Conti doing ventriloquism, um, lots of clowning acts, um, lots of quite unusual and different things. So, and, and storytelling stuff. I mean, obviously Daniel Kitson winning it and things like that. That You know, I, I think one day, I hope there's going to be, well, I, I certainly think there's going to be more variety getting nominated for the Comedy Award. I also would really love to see a magic show get nominated i don't necessarily know if one could win um but even just nominated i would would be amazing super well I'm, yeah, i think we're, we're getting close to close to a good hour here chris so um i guess to round to round things up what, what are some of your your aims aspirations for the future um you know a uh, a comedy award-winning 2020 edinburgh fringe show aside well yeah who knows um so i guess yeah i i've going to do the fringe again because <laughs> it feels uh like a really big part of my life now um and i'm already sort of working on next year's show i've already come up with loads of ideas and thrown loads of them in the bin um but then there's other bits and pieces um i have some shows coming up in a couple of weeks um i, I tour europe usually a couple of times a year um so in a couple of weeks let me have a little look at my diary i'm doing shows in Bratislava and Vienna and Salzburg. So if this gets out in time, you can always have a look at my website. I'm sure there'll be details there. I'm also doing some shows in London um, at the very end of January and start of February, which I think is, yeah, the, the 30th of January till the 1st at the Hen and Chickens, um, which is a really nice little venue. Um, 
But then, yeah, looking kind of forward and beyond that, trying to sort of work on some ideas that are kind of non-magic shows. Like, I'd be very keen. um, I've done some sort of writing with short stories, looking at some ideas for short films and pieces that, yeah, can can move away from that. I'd be really interested in making some theatre that is, yeah, perhaps still somewhat influenced by magic. Um, I'd like to make shows that are sort of maybe in some ways magical, but not necessarily magic shows or full of magic tricks. Um, And a lot of shows that I've really enjoyed have done that. Like I think some of the most, (coughs) one of the most powerful magic tricks I ever saw on stage was so powerful because it wasn't part of a magic show. So you didn't, a kind of, it it, it was in a show where um, a body fell from the rafters, someone was climbing up in the rafters and then fell and collapsed on stage and it they fell like 20 odd feet. And it was this really powerful moment where you're like, oh my God, this person has died. And then you would go, wait, it's part of a show. <clears throat> it was just a dummy. And then a few minutes later, the dummy stands up and it's the same person and they walk off. And I, you know, I'm sure they'd just done a clever run around and there was a little bit of misdirection from the other side of the stage. So you didn't notice that they switched the dummy for the real person, but like it was so powerful because it wasn't part of a magic show. And I think if a magician had gone for my next trick and then done that, it wouldn't have had any impact. Um, So yeah, I think I'd be really interested in working in theater in ways like that, where you can still utilize magic, but it's not necessarily for the purpose of being a magic trick. It was a show about Sherlock Holmes, but I can't quite remember the name of it. And that is awful, isn't it? Um, God, it was several years ago. I'll try, I'll try and look it up and let you know before, before this goes out. But equally other things that I've seen, like I've, I, a puppetry show um, called Sam Rose in the Shadows that I saw that was full of sort of magical moments like that, that was just, you know, utterly beautiful and transfixing and filled with like magic, but it wasn't a magic show and that's why it felt so magical. Um, I I think often magicians, we fall into the trap of making the absolutely impossible trivial. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Tricks. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry for waffling on loads. I'm sure you've got lots to do in the edit, but thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.